Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson Podcast Mike here, introducing you to this week's guest. And over the next few weeks of Philosophy, heading into Christmas and the end of 2021, we have a bunch of episodes. So we will be putting out uh, probably two episodes a week for most of the rest of the year. So look forward to that. This week, we have Eddie Perfect for his second appearance on Philosophy. Great episode that was recorded um, quite a while ago now. So we do have quite a backlog that we're trying to get out over the rest of the year. This episode was recorded pre-lockdown in Melbourne, I believe. So you will find that some of the references to COVID and lockdown are a little outdated. But uh, yeah, fantastic chat with Eddie Perfect nonetheless, where he talks about working with Kylie Minogue on an Australian tourism ad over in the UK and the challenges and fun he had working on that show, as well as that, his journey into pursuing a career in Broadway, writing songs for King Kong the Musical, uh, as well as Beetlejuice, which he talks about a little bit in this episode too. If you like Willosophy, head to patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month. You get these episodes a day early with no ads on the Patreon ad-free feed. That is uh, a great way to support the podcast. As well as that, you can go to tofop.com and check out the rest of the Tofop Network podcasts, including Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup, and AFL podcast, which has just entered its summer season, Footy Fixes, with Charlie Clawson and Scott Dooley. So go and check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Pod for both, and check out all of the fantastic portraits that our artist James Fosdyke has made up of the guests on this show. And as well as that, let us know what you think on Twitter. Tweet something out, tag us in it. We love hearing all your feedback about all of the episodes of Philosophy. So look forward to hearing some for this episode. But for now, I'll pass it over to Will Anderson and Eddie Perfect for this episode of Philosophy. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is a return episode, uh, which means there's a previous guest who has appeared on Philosophy, and they, this previous guest has decided the moment we started the podcast is the perfect time to open their bottle of water <laughs> in classic timing. This is how the show starts. I'm padding at the moment while they're drinking their bottle of water. Because uh, the way that the show starts is I ask the guest who they are. Who are you, sir? Oh, I'm... I'm... <laughs> <laughs> hydrated and I'm Eddie Perfect. Hello, hydrated Eddie Perfect. How are you? We've literally been gas bagging for 20 minutes. I know. At any stage in that, you could have had a drink from your bottle of water. I know, water, I just decided to go then. I wasn't quite sure how long the preamble was. I was like, <laughs> I think it's going to be like sip worthy. <laughs> you said sip worthy, not simp worthy, right? <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, nice to have you back on the show. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Last time we spoke, of course, was pre, you know, global pandemic. Pre-pandemic, yeah. yeah, was it? Yeah, it was. It was in the um, the summer of 2019. It right? was. It was late yeah. in 2019. Yeah, yeah no, late November or early December of 2019 was when we spoke. So I think maybe even before the fires kicked yeah. off. A few, yeah, exactly. A few, yeah, it was, and a few weeks. Be- Remember the fires. Remember the fires? No one Remember really that does. Thing? Remember, <laughs> Remember Brexit? Remember when Brexit was a thing that was annoying? <laughs> I mean, the fires was the one that I just can't believe something so bad happened that has made us forget the fires. Because the fires yeah. 
were terrible. And for the people who went through the fires, you know, the people like, you know, in Malakuta who not only went through the fires, but then in a year when they were meant to be rebuilding their lives had to go through COVID and the devastating effects that that had on their communities and the inability to be able to rebuild because of all these extra things. Like, I mean, they got one tragedy straight into another tragedy for their lives. And that was like the, that was, I remember it was having to wear those, um, not being able to go to, kids not being able to go to school because of air quality, having to wear like those particle filtering masks, how mm. like insane that seemed that something something natural could cause the kind of chaos that would stop you living your life. That was a sort of a new concept. And it was like, well, you think that's, I mean, that's uh, inconvenient. I remember how outraged we were that remember Sydney, like, the air quality was so bad for two weeks that everybody had to wear masks for two weeks in Sydney. Yeah. And people were just like, I can't believe this that I have to... And then we were just like, hold on your masks. Yeah, <laughs> hold on to those. <laughs> those are... In fact, go to the shop and get some material <laughs> and make a fancy one because yeah. you're going to be wearing yeah. this a lot. <laughs> yeah, this plain one is not going to cut it. <laughs> so what has happened in your life since then because well, since our I... lives have all changed very considerably but take me back to you know the end of 2019 and what happened for you from then on well i had um i i had written <laughs> i'd written a song for <laughs> kylie minogue for this massive tourism ad uh-huh. um, oh yes of course yeah and yes. so i i didn't i came back that summer <laughs> And it was due to air. So it was, for, for those of it, it wasn't made for Australians. It was made essentially. Tourism Australia yep. wanted a song for their big end of year campaign to encourage Brits, worn out by the politics of Brexit, yep. to take a break in Australia with their mates. And it was sort of a song. They wanted a song about mateship and um, and our kind of like cultural and historical rivalry and friendship and all that kind of if stuff. If people watch Gruen, we talked about it on Gruen this year. We had a Did real you? look yeah, we had a real look into it. And yeah, it starred Adam Hills as well, Kylie Minogue. It was a very funny Jane song. Warren, Ash Barty. About what you know, like it was a real tongue in cheek, you know, pitched at the British audience, you know, get out of your boring, cold Brexity country and come yeah. down to Australia. Yeah. And so by the way it's on fire. Yeah. By the way it's on fire. <laughs> So the fires were happening before yeah. the air date. Uh-huh. It was Christmas Day, and that in in the UK they were airing it just before the Queen's speech. I, I think, think after or the just Queen's, after the Queen's uh, before or after the Queen's. Yeah, maybe it was just before the Queen's message. But it was it was either one. It was one or the other. It's yeah. a prime time slot. This is as big as you can get. Queen's christmas message in the uk this is like you're yeah. going to get eyeballs from everywhere and the australian tourism campaign had paid for because it was long too we're not talking a 30 second ad this is uh yeah like a three minute three a and video and a half clip, minute basically song. yeah it's a giant you know expensive funny star filled video clip in a prime position on uk tv yeah so they've bought this media space and everything is about this media buy right so super expensive and super prime time and so everything kind of backs you know away from that six months prior to to making it and you know i wrote this i thought when i got the brief i was like i should write something like kind of stock waterman sort of vibe for car something retro and something you know pop and then i was like it doesn't feel right it needs to be more anthemic and I wrote this song and I sent it to them and they were like, great. And then they sort of buried me in r- ridiculous notes because they didn't want anything to be offensive, you know, and everything funny sort of has to walk a little bit of an edge. Yeah. And then, so, so you don't really want a comedian. This is what you should say. You, yeah. should, you should have really got someone else because, guys, yeah. <laughs> have you looked at any of the work that I've done previous to this? Can you take out the word 
Brexit. That was a weird <laughs> note. I was like, right. So the brief mentions Brexit about 400 times. But I don't think we need to mention it. Okay, cool. Um, you know, and then other weird, other really weird things where yeah. it was like, we, we don't want to be judging the UK. We don't be like anything like that. You well, know, this we, is the problem, right? You're not just working on uh, like a comedy song and you're not even just working on an advertising comedy song. You're working with a government funded department and on a campaign, traditionally Australians, this is like a, it's a constant topic that we have on Groom, which is this idea of that these ads um, not made for Australians. They're not meant to be for Australians, yep. whether it's America and we're being pitched as Paul Hogan or whether it's the UK and we're pitching with Colin Minogue and Adam Hills and you know, the things that appeal to the UK people. They aren't for Australians, but the one thing that you know is they are going to be watched, devoured, discussed and criticised by Australians. That's it. And so there's a lot of pressure on it from all angles. And I remember um, they flew me out to London and, you know, I hadn't hung out with Australians for a really long time. Yeah. And um, what really freaked me out was just how much everybody drank. And I drink, <laughs> <laughs> I drink alcohol. I love, I, I, I love it. But like Americans are like, they don't really drink in professional settings. But yeah. Australians are like, I don't care. You know, there's a lunch, there's going to be bottles of wine and booze. And I was like, holy smokes. Such a thing that you only discover when you first go to America that not everybody has a beer at lunch. Yeah. Like you go to some meeting and someone else is paying. And if someone else is paying, you always order a drink. And, <laughs> and then they look at you like, are you like, an alcoholic? You know, and I'm like, yeah, it's no, lunch. I'm Australian and it's lunch and you're paying for it. <laughs> you're paying for this drink. Why <laughs> would like, I? Yeah. Um, so we had to go to this meeting to meet Kylie and to talk to her. And I thought the whole thing was a done deal with her, right? Oh. She's already on board and she's heard that's, the song. That's what she's you've been great. pitched, is she's in. But, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And we're just okay. going to go and discuss it. So that's great. We get in the weird minivan, all of us, and we drive out to wherever she is. And she's just come back from doing um, one of those sort of festivals. It's gone really well. And... She's got like a little office, you know, you know, a little kind of business park, which is very nice. And I, you know, she's tiny. I meet her. I'm very excited. I never met Kylie before, so I'm trying to be, you know, pretty cool. And then everyone just sort of like um, from Tourism Australia and from the ad agency sort of turns to me and goes, "Okay, well, Eddie, do you want to talk to Kylie about the song?" And I realised that she doesn't know anything about the song, isn't it? And I'm like there to pitch to her, and yeah. so I had to go through this whole. It's probably something they could have given you a heads up about, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! And but that, that went fine. She's like, "Yeah, great. Um, why don't we get together tomorrow at this studio and we can just play and sing through it?" And and I'm like, "Oh, okay." So I the next day I went to a little studio, just a piano and Kylie sitting on a couch, and we just played and sang through the song. And I, I recorded it on the, the you know the note. What is it? The recording thing on yeah. my phone. Um, and she's great. She's a really good singer, you know. But just having Kylie and I just sort of singing right next to you and talking through the song, that was really great. And then when we recorded in the studio, um, she has this music producer who was a really lovely guy, an older gentleman, but he was very protective. And he actually wanted to do a... He had a meeting with me and the, um, the other music producer about how he wanted the record day to go with Kylie. And it was all very... Um, you know, we'll get a sound, we'll get, you know, get her happy, we'll do a few takes, we'll comp together something and then we'll have something to talk about and then we'll bring you in and we're like, okay. So on the day of the recording, I was just sort of sitting in the waiting room of this studio for like hours while she was in there recording stuff and then 
you know, eventually they're like, all right, we've got something, we're happy, come on in. And I walk in and the recording booth is like covered in, Kylie's pr- printed out all these pictures of quokkas because she got obsessed with quokkas during the making of the ad. And and the producer... Also, well, because one of the classic lines from the song is, oh, look, there's a quokka. Yeah, right? and that's it's, what you need. Yeah. It's honestly the big takeout line i think it was the one on gruen that everybody on the panel agreed was the classic line of the entire song <laughs> and, and it got incorporated yep. into the rest of their tourism campaign like literally yeah. in other things they used external to that song they would have people saying oh look there's a quokka <laughs> yeah and quokkas know their angles like they know how to get in a yeah. selfie they know they look good on yeah. camera they, they know what they're doing one of the quokkas. most photogenic animals in the world yeah they know they know what they're they can work yeah. it and um the producer goes, okay, I'm going to play you what we've done. Mm-hmm. And so there's me, there's um, the music producer, there's two people from Tourism Australia, there's two people from the ad agency. We're all crammed into this thing, uh, into this little booth. And Kylie's just sort of three people down sitting on the couch listening to it with us. And I'm like, okay, great. And they play it. And I'm like, this is great, but she's singing in, a, in an American accent, right? Oh. And I'm like, this is weird. Yeah. Kylie is a lot of things you know but she's not american and this is an australian tourism ad right. and so i um i mean she's been living a lot in america because i know that because i used to see her quite a lot she must have lived somewhere near where i lived over there because there was a coffee shop that we would both go to so i'd often quite yeah see her at this coffee shop right right so maybe there was some sort of she was but anyway, go on. Just please. a couple of sounds, and there's a couple of sounds at the ends of them where they turned like R's, where they turned uh, um, slightly American. I could hear it straight away, and I'm like, "This is not good. You know, this is not right." Yeah. Um, everything else, <laughs> but it was fine. So, like, you know, I did my usual thing, which was, I'm like, "Great, this ends. This is fantastic. It's so cool." And you know, like, it's lots of things to work on. I think we've got to kind of like work out some of these sounds can um, are sounding a little American to my ears, but I think we don't need to sound like super Australian, but we need to iron them out and. Kylie's like, great, I'll go in and do some more. And so she goes into the vocal booth and then her producer like takes me outside. He's like, that's, um, I I get what you're doing, but that is how Kylie Minogue sounds. That's how she sounds. And I don't think you're going to get anything else out of her. And he didn't want her to do any more sort of work on it. It was a very weird kind of like custodial, proprietorial, fatherly, protective. But also, that's not how Kylie Minogue sounds. (laughs) Like, I'm like, we're, I'm Australian. We're pretty familiar with how Kylie Minogue sounds. If she sounds American, Australian's going to be really upset. They're going to be like, can you imagine that's all anyone would talk about? American in a UK ad. So not even like, yeah. maybe in an American ad, if this was pitched to the American tourism audience, yeah, do some hard ass. Say water. Like it's yeah. fine. Like, but like in a UK ad, I, I know. it makes no sense it at all. It makes no sense. You know, if you're singing literally about yeah. Australia. So, but but the thing is, Kylie was like really up for doing all that work, and and I th- and I think appreciated like having somebody go, that's not right. Let's try this. You know, she's a really hardworking person and and not afraid of it. So we got a really kind of um, good take of it, and then went and shot the ad in Australia. Obviously, the the country is not on fire when they're shooting the ad. Okay, so just before we move on to shooting the ad, so there was just a couple of things out of the Kylie thing that I wanted to explore yeah. a little bit more, which was firstly. The idea that sometimes management can get in the way. Yeah. Like, is that an experience that you had in the past? I know even from my management, who I absolutely adore, sometimes, you know, when you get feedback from somebody about something they said no to or something they said you wouldn't do, where you're just like, 
I know that they were just trying to protect me in this instance, but I would have been fine to do that thing. It, I, I yeah, I've experienced that a lot, and this was an ex, this was an, certainly an experience where I was like, what this particular man is trying to do is actually n- not helping Kylie. Yes. It's going to hurt her. You know what I mean? Mm. And I just instinctively knew that. And it's weird because you know, I you know I didn't own the ad. I wasn't, but they just sort of handballed the musical direction of it to me. Yeah. So I just kind of had to like step up and just control all of that stuff, even though, you know, I'm directing bloody Kylie Minogue. Um, and I do think that sometimes management or other producers can get in the way of that process because they think what they're doing is um, shielding their client from too much work or, or duress or stress. But really the creative process is, is sort of def- defined by that. And, the, and it's hard to walk that line as, as management to go, this is inappropriate or you're asking too much or you're being annoying or you know and then and then also the the opposite which is not digging down to get the best work out of the creative person which is what they want to deliver so that's a very hard line to walk and with someone that's so famous and um like kylie you know you kind of you can't i kind of didn't want to give any notes i really didn't i really wanted it just to be right because I don't want to tell Kylie Minogue she's not doing it right, you know. And um, so it is a kind of a strange thing where you're like, okay, let's just go back and make this person make this person's job harder, but be, for a better result. I think. And then the second thing is the way that you delivered those notes and feedback. I think is interesting. So are you a person if generally you have to offer something critical, you will lead with all the positives first is that your style of you know working in that situation yeah i always go with positives first but i also think that um my experience of working in um new york has just gifted me with a a really extensive vocab to give notes on things that i don't think are right in a way that is um you know not offensive to the person hearing them but it's also really du- direct. I'm just like, oh, let's just do the work. I'm a little bit, I'm a little less timid about it now. Um, and I find that people generally are receptive to that. Sometimes they're not and people get annoyed with you. But, like, you know, you kind of got to be results driven. Like, what do we want to get out of this? But, you know, there's so many ways to say this sucks. And I worked on a project where all people were um, from the UK and were too polite and we just mm-hmm. wasted all this time. So I don't think you need to be an asshole about it, but you do need to go, you know, um, I think these are the things that we need to fix or can we try this or we can try that and then do it all with a spirit of like excitement and this is really great. We're just plussing now, you know, we're just adding, yeah. you know, because sometimes you get into it and you're like, oh, I think we're in trouble. Like, this is bad. Like this is how we're going to make this better. The, the truth is if you've got a good team, People want to make it better. They want to do the work. And sometimes it's it's as simple as coming up with a fun way to deliver that sort of feedback so that everybody gets on board. We have a phrase that has become like kind of just our in-joke at Gruen, which is because it came out of a meeting where I actually said this, but it's now just become our shorthand for uh, when one day like I was being pitched something and they said, what do you think? And I said, look, it's just a bit boring so far. And that's become our... Like, you know, if we are looking at something, we're yeah. going, is it a bit boring so far? And it just became our fun little bit of language for us all to be able to go, we haven't quite got this right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's cra- also cracking the idea. Mm. I've worked on so many things where we haven't cracked the actual idea. And instead of just keeping on going, we've just 
kind of colluded and lied to ourselves. Right. Yeah, yeah. What if we all? What if we all lied? This will be okay. One of the, I'm sure it'll never be found out by audiences or people we have to present it I mean, to. It is amazing. <laughs> I know. And it is amazing how a group of people can lie to themselves. Yeah, totally. Even when there's huge amounts of money. I, uh, we did that to ourselves on Kong so many times. Like King Kong, the Broadway show. I remember we, the the writer Jack Thorne was like, I know I'm skipping around here, but it's okay. an example. That's, that's what this podcast is. We don't want the tribes people in Kong because it was, which rightly... It, they're always sort of used as this kind of exotic, mystical kind of group of people who are performing some sort of sacrifice and it's all very dated and yeah. not, it's racist. Not, not particularly culturally appropriate, I would yeah. have thought. Yeah. You can't have tribal dancing no. and sacrifices and, yeah. you know, who are they? What are they? You can't, you know, if you're not going to take care of them, you can't really use them. So yeah. we were all like, great, let's cut, let's cut the trans people. But Anne Darrow has to somehow get caught up in a... Of like some kind of trap, right. and then sacri- sort of sacrifice to a giant gorilla. Yeah. That's what has to happen. So what are we? What are we going to do? And um, and we <laughs> basically it was like, oh, the jungle will come alive. And so we had like people dancers dressed yeah. in like jungle material, like aerial, aerial aerial falling from the roof on cables, and kind of like. The, they're manipulating the people as they walk through the jungle and Anne gets kind of like caught up in vines and she's sort of stuck. And it was an absence of an idea. Yeah. It wasn't a new idea. <laughs> and I was like, these fucking vines. <laughs> and the worst thing is that it was weird in the room, but it was weirder when it got costumed. Yeah, right. Like, because they were then wearing like vines, vines. and leaves. <laughs> and so I was like, oh shit. It's a bad idea that we've. It's a bad idea that we've thrown design and money at. Yes, you know what I mean. So that was like super weird. Um, Yeah. So um, I just I wanted to stop on that because I am very interested in feedback and how it's like delivered and how it's received. But so you come to us like so is it shot in Australia? Where are they shooting? Yeah, I mean because there's obviously visuals of Australia. But like a Kylie and Adam and those guys shooting in Australia as well. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. Adam was sort of li- limited, and he only had one day, I think. So he came and did the day in. Um, they started in Sandringham, Sandringham Beach in Melbourne, because yep. it was like Sandringham, Sandringham. Yep. Um, that was the joke. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> he did that day, and then he had to be in other locations. So they just sort of shot him in yeah. different parts of Sandringham Beach for like Byron or right. for. I think they shot in Bara and they shot in um, uh, at Uluru with that beautiful kind of like those lights that are all around um, the rock. And then they shot in um, the Great Barrier Reef. There's an island that looks like a heart that they had Ian Thorpe swim around. But Ian Thorpe had a bit of a bad back, apparently. Oh. Didn't want to swim. Didn't want to swim. So they got someone else to do the swim someone else had to stunt swim for Thorpey yeah I don't know if I'm like giving away who cares I don't think that there's going to be a like 10 part podcast into whether Ian Salt was the person swimming around the (laughs) island pretty sure I didn't sign any NDAs anyway so um, yeah he he just sort of like he just um, I think he just did a bit return to the camera and he was like go grab your cozies or something I can't remember Um, Ash Barty just played a bit of tennis she's good at that um (laughs) And it was, yeah, it was really great. There was one weird part in the shoot where I got called by the agency. I was back in New York and they were like, would you consider um, getting on a plane like today and just kind of flying out to um, to Alice Springs? Because 
um, you know, Kylie's disappointed that you're not here and she was having like some questions about the track and then they're like, and she'd kind of like asked for you. She kind of, and I was like, so, sorry, what are you asking me? You asked me to get on a plane now to fly to Alice Springs uh, for a day. Because Kylie would like to have a chat. <laughs> Kylie would like to have a chat. I'm like, I mean, I can understand their instincts. Like if Kylie's like, where's Eddie? Your first instinct is probably, can we get Eddie here? Yeah, let's just get, let's <laughs> let's just just get, get Eddie. him here. And I was like, I don't really, like, it just kind of like a can mascot. Can you put her on the phone? Yeah. Can I, can you, have you heard it? Can we zoom this can shit? Zoom? Like, you know, what's the issue? And then they were like, they went away and thought about it. And they were like, yeah, no, that's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> We've, We've panicked a little. Always <laughs> asked us a question. She asked for Eddie. We just yeah. wanted to produce him. We said, "We said, can you get you anything?" And we were thinking water. She said, "Eddie, we've got to get you here, man." Crazy. It would have been like a, you know, like a, f- a proper business class flight that would have flown me to Alice Springs and back, and just like around in a circle. And I'm like, I, I mean, I would have been on my way to the airport. <laughs> I would have I'll been be like, there. Uh, tell Kylie I'm on my way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but a part of me was like. Um, Kylie wants to go. Kylie wants to come to the desert and yeah. hang out. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I might do that. And, and Lu- I think it was Lucy who was like, that is ridiculous. No, you are not flying halfway across the world for another woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wanted you to take the garbage out and you didn't fucking do yeah. that. So, yeah. And that was just down the stairs. Yeah. And she loves Kylie. She love, I love Kylie. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, yeah. It's hard when you're in Australia not to love Kylie, even though I wasn't. A massive, you know, it's not my style of music, her style of music. Every time I would see her in LA, I would be secretly thrilled because as an Australian, there is just something about Kylie Minogue. I think it is partly that she is an ordinary superstar. Like, do you mean? Like, you know, she came from being such an ordinary person, like an ordinary suburban family and like has talent without a doubt. Like you can't dismiss Kylie, Kylie as being without talent. But what I love about Kylie is she's just... I don't know if there's anyone in the history of show business has maximised the amount of talent they have in the way that Kylie Minogue has managed to. Yeah, I think a lot of it would be about how maybe she's gone about her career and, you know, it, it, uh, <clears throat> I have such a huge respect for people like Kylie where you, know, like, where you go, it's not, accident, an ac- it's not an accident. No. And it certainly wouldn't keep happening if there wasn't something, a driving force, which is about her taste her interests who she wants to perform for who she collaborates with all that stuff you know that's been very cleverly done and she doesn't really she's sort of all things to all people in a very gracious way you know she doesn't you know you're not getting like angry political tweets from kylie no she's very much in fact like you know very um careful not really even to be like you know quoted that much in public not interviewed a lot you know she's I mean, I'd love to have her on the podcast. If you're listening, Kylie, yeah. I know you love Eddie. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know that you need Eddie by your side at yeah. any stage. So you've I'll probably stand. Tu- I'll you've stand. probably tuned in for this podcast, <laughs> the first one you've listened to. What's I would Eddie love to saying? sit down What's with Eddie you. Yeah. What's Eddie up to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm basically like a Kylie mascot. Okay, so you do this incredibly big production. Yeah. Like, you know, they shoot it in Australia. It's meant to be, you know, playing in the UK, and then. The fires happen, basically. Yeah, so well, the, it does ha- play, but then it essentially immediately gets pulled. So I'm, I, I'm waiting for Christmas Day to roll around for this yeah. ad to drop, and my wife and I are like, Lucy, obviously, um, it's been on Gruen. She worked in advertising. She knows all this stuff. She's like, surely they're going to pull this right. ad. 
and then she, and then I was like, well, nope, they're not. They're going ahead with it. Um, and Lucy was like, let's put a bet on the amount of time that passes between when that ad drops to when somebody does a re-edit of the song on YouTube with koalas on fire. Yeah. And I was like, hopefully it's a couple of hours. Yeah. How and long it, was it? It was like about about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, she's in there's a tree, she's in a tree, Taronga yeah. Zoo, there's koalas everywhere. And, you know, yeah. so it was interesting because it, it, it dropped at a time when, you know, Australians were not happy with, well, they were they were unhappy with the fire. We're obviously, you know, like communities devastated, natural wildlife brought to the brink of extinction. Um, you know, it's devastating time for people. And it was, you know, the, these tourism ads are kind of difficult to get right because, um, as you said before, they're not for us, they're for the UK market, but we still want to be proud of them because they're, we're representing ourselves to the world. And so everybody has got a different take on whether it's an accurate representation. And for a start, Australia was on fire mm. and it wasn't in the ad. And so that was I mean, bad. it would have been a hard thing to wedge into the ad. I mean, yeah. if they didn't want edgy jokes, it would have been hard for you to do it. Like what rhymes with bushfires. Um, but it also I think it was partly that, yeah, we'd been so let down by the government. You know, Scott yeah. Morrison had gone to Hawaii when he actually eventually got back to Australia and gone out on his lack of empathy tour. He, you know, hadn't been shaking people's hands. He'd been grabbing people's hands. He had, oh hadn't understood God. what to do. That was extraordinary. And then you have the government spending all this money to advertise ourselves somewhere else at the same time. Yeah. It, I think... There was a general dissatisfaction with it. Yeah, it just felt like a really yeah, bad, bad representation. Timing. Of yeah. Terrible timing. And then, of course, this ad's gone on to win all these bloody awards because ads get more... I mean, they think actors need to get awards to feel good about themselves. Advertising people are insane, the amount of awards they Advertising people are the only people that can look at... Like, yeah, actors can look at advertising people and go, you give yourself too many awards. That's it. <laughs> like, that's the only category they can look at. We will create a business by creating an award. Yeah. Because you have to pay to enter and, you know, it's, it's insane. But um, it's won all of these crazy awards. Like, it's won... Um, <laughs> Lucy's going to be annoyed at me because I can never remember what they are because I don't care about them. That's not my world. But they've like the equivalent of like you know um, like a Golden Globe or a BAFTA yeah. or something you know like like a, a one like a Palme d'Or or some sort of like something like you yeah know, like some, a pen the pence there's a pencil yeah. award I mean there's a lot of different awards yeah. for advertising <laughs> Lucy's like if I won that that would be like an insane <laughs> achievement and I'm like oh yeah. cool and yeah. so I'm like and if you won the Barry Lucy yeah I'd be jealous of that yeah so. <laughs> especially if you were like mm, yeah. Barry who cares yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lucy won three Tonys. <laughs> she was real dismissive about it. <laughs> Did and I, I was like, oh, I well, I want to get this award because yeah. they were like, um, you know, you you can write to us and we'll send you out the the thing, oh, the, the actual, actual award, statuette. Yeah. and it's like a it's like a big pencil or something. Yeah, I'm like, right. that's cool. That'd be that's groovy. I might get that. And they were like, yeah, it's like um, seven hundred dollars. I'm yeah. like, it's not so great. Nah, it's uh, fine. <laughs> It's fine. It looks good on paper. I, mean, I don't need a seven hundred dollar ceramic pencil. I don't need to buy myself a trophy. No, even though I earned it, like even though technically I won the award, I don't need to buy myself a trophy. I actually threw all of my awards out when I moved to New York. This is a weird story. This is a weird thing. I was like going. Th we were pretty ruthless. We were in a bit of a uh -huh. you know get rid of stuff yeah. to go to New York. I had this box of um, awards, and there was like you know, um, 
yeah, not to not to award drop, but like you know, Helpman and Green Room Awards, and there was like a Sydney Meyer Performing Arts Award thing, which is like a weird metal thing, and yeah. a giant um, piece of glass with Adelaide's last plastic bag in it, which was like literally that was the award for Fringe that weighed seven and a half kilos, and yeah, right. and I was like, what am I doing all this stuff? Are you you put them down in your CV, but what am I going to do? Display them? I've got nowhere to. to display. I'm not into that. So they're in a box. And so I just put them out into the rubbish. And we had this guy um, who takes away large lots of rubbish that we've used a lot. And his business is called I'll Take It. (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I love it. Isn't that great? no one else will take it, I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) He'll take it. I will. Uh, so what, what will you do with it? I'll take it. All right. It's not your business after yeah. that. What will I do with it? <laughs> all I promise is I will take it. So he's coming in, he's grabbing all of our crap yep. and he's throwing it into his truck. And then I get a knock on the door and he's a really lovely guy. And he goes, um, I just found this box full of awards. Did you he mean, said, to, Did throw you mean to throw these? They look pretty important. And I was like kind of embarrassed. I was, I was like, oh yeah, no, no, thank you. And I... And I kept them, but I did in that moment seeing like this box of sort of fancy awards through Joe. I'll take it's eyes. I was like, yeah, what am I doing? Throwing this stuff out. So now it's in a box in a. Cupboard. Oh, so you still have it? I kept them. Yeah, I kept so them. So I don't even. So I was funny enough. Like it's rare that you get to you know have a conversation around <laughs> like this sort of topic. So I'm going to take it while it's here. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Recently, <laughs> speaking of not signing... Uh, you hate it when you burn all your cash. <laughs> yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know when you've got so many awards that you oh, don't value them anymore and you just throw them out? Yeah. So uh, Amy was doing a... Amy, my partner, she was doing a... She's a production designer and she picked up a job for Sasha Baron Cohen. So when nice. he was in Australia, he was doing a segment for... It's when he won the Golden Globes. He was doing a segment for the Jimmy Kimmel Show that people can watch online. And so basically... She, he needed his sort of office to be set up as if he was dealing vaccines. So they were going to kind of do a straight interview as the first thing and then the second oh, yeah. break, it becomes this sketch around like that Sasha's on the phone to Kanye and all these celebrities dealing out. He's got a fridge full of things, ends up with guns and a car chase and like it's a whole oh my God. bit. Like yeah. they really put like a decent amount of budget into like, you know, doing, doing this bit. And so she was doing the... Yeah, production design for it. It was like a three-day quick job. You know, had to source a whole bunch of guns, which the Americans don't realize how hard to do in Australia because they're just like, well, why don't you go to a toy store and buy a replica gun? And we're like, because we are not a bananas country that lets you do that. <laughs> you went, yeah. you know, even if you have a toy gun on a set in Australia, you need to have an armorer. You need to have like all these things in yeah. place. Anyway, so she's doing this. What they wanted was on his shelf behind him like some, you know, some Oscars and some things like that. But you can't replicate Oscars, like proper Oscars. Like really? that's a trademark. You know, so prop stores and stuff don't even have Oscars. And they said, well, generic awards will do. And Amy's like, you've won a bunch of awards. Like you've like won, yeah. like you said, I've like won a Helpman, actors, like yeah. Logies, like fucking people's cho- like fucking so many awards. She's like, do you have any trophies in your office? And I go out the back. And literally the only trophy that I have in my entire like back room is when I was in year 11, um, I won something called the Lion's Use of the Year, um, which is like a public speaking and public service oh, competition. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like they used to do those with like Rotary and Lions yeah. Club. Yeah. So Lions Club did like a national competition. They got a state winner from each state and I won the Victorian like version of that. Nice. And my friends, I don't have the trophy from that. 
I have the trophy my friends made me, which is Lion's Knob of the Year, and it's just a doorknob that they've just made up for me because, of course, you know, your friends like are very supportive of you. Literally, the yeah. only trophy I have from anything that I've won is my Year 11 Lion's, Lions knob. knob of the Year award. So that t- please tell me that made it into the Asher Baron going... <laughs> well, I did send it along. I don't think it made it in, unfortunately. <laughs> tiny little Lion's Knob. Yeah, it's weird with it. Yeah, it's weird. How do you feel about awards? It's an interesting topic because I was having this conversation. You and I are having this chat um, in in the final weekend of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And I was having a chat um, actually yesterday with somebody around the award nominations and how amazing all the acts who've been nominated for awards were but at the same time how much i hate comedy awards because comedy is not a competition and i look at those eight shows that are nominated for the best show and they're all great and i just don't know how you compare luke heggie's show to reuben k's show or to michelle brazier's show they're all just completely different shows they're all great yeah you know they've all won they're all great and also tom ballard's show was great and didn't make the list and also greg larson's show was great and didn't make the list it's yeah i think awards in general are probably pretty dumb when it comes to the arts, which is probably why I don't have any of those trophies. I don't value them particularly. But it's, what's your feeling around it? Well, it's it's the, the the longer you kind of work in an industry that um, gives itself awards, the more you start to see the... Because you, when you first start, awards are these kind of like magical things that just appear. You get like, You've been nominated for... Uh, helpman award or a green room award so you go along into this event you don't know anybody and there's just this magical process whereby um there are nominees and then somebody gets an award and you walk up and you get an award and it feels great and you're like how good is this and then you start to meet and know the people who are deciding who gets nominated and the sheen comes off it because some of them are great some of them are like some of them are like yeah i'm facebook friends with that person your taste is shit you know what I mean? Which is fine. Yes. But there are humans behind everything. There's nothing yes. magical about anything. And um, so you kind of, it's, it's, I think everybody has the same experience where it's really nice if it happens and you can, it's sort of like a, ha- a, a, a handle to hang some kudos oh, yeah, off. Yeah, totally. But the actual thing itself is pretty, it's pretty silly and it's arbitrary. And like you say, a lot of the time comparing apples and oranges. Getting like the the and does depend on as you said before what your area particular area of passion is. So, for example, like I think in musical theatre, you know, the Helpman Award in Australia probably is one of those things that people who work in that area of the world that would probably be quite valued uh, award. Yeah, but they have a comedy award which I've won, and I just sometimes forget that I've won it because yeah. the Helpman Award is not our world that's Whereas not your if, world yeah if i ever won the best show at the melbourne comedy festival i would genuinely value that regardless of how stupid i know that system is yeah if i won that i would still be like that secretly makes me happy <laughs> i mean yeah of course because it's your world <laughs> and there are and there are little you know it's it, it's arbitrary but you just hope that it all sort of heads in the right direction there's a lot of luck there's a lot of um it's kind of zeitgeist that goes on with it you know is it the right show at the right time like we're seeing in the comedy festival you know and i think this is the legacy of things like nanette you know that um comedy doesn't need to be just you know disassociated jokes that you know you can bind it around a, a, a thematic idea that can involve quite confronting, difficult, personal 
experiences and you're you you're allowed to take your foot off the i mean depending who you ask the joke accelerator in order to say something serious that that will hold and the audiences will go with you and i think we're seeing a lot of that kind of comedy i mean i saw michelle brazier's show and you know that was kind of extraordinary in in like what her um what experiences that had been based on and i heard her also on this podcast and she was terrific um and you know she's amazingly talented i you know sort of seeing that kind of culture come into um into play but also difficult because you know you only get your legs burnt off once you know they do one (laughs) show about it you know what i mean yeah there is a little bit of her show where you're like you've jammed in a few stories into this yeah next year you could have rolled out a couple of those next year's show yeah so i feel like i left some stuff out about my legs burning and uh you know it's hard (laughs) i forgot i forgot something yeah yeah Yeah, well, it's true. You know, then you're like, that's that's difficult. That's the that's the challenge with personal yeah. tragedy and turning that into art. Is that you know, mm. unless you're going to. Dis- Hopefully, eventually, you actually run out of personal tragedy. <sighs> you're like, God, I got to go walk out my door and get hit by a tram just so I can. Yeah, you know. I recommend getting arrested on the way to Walga. <laughs> yes, there you go. Silver lining. Silver lining. Okay, so anyway, we got distracted, but they shoot this big campaign. Obviously. Australia's on fire. So we've got to that so far. Yeah. In we haven't even got to what happens next. So what happens next? Well, um 10 days later it just gets pulled from wherever it was wherever it was on air. I think it was on air in the UK on on um ITV and it was like showing before movies at the cinemas and you know, it was a big furor about it. Um and then it sort of got pulled, but no one seemed to be that disappointed with that. I mean, it was like, oh, is this a big waste of money? But it went on to do the ad thing, which ads do, which is go through that system of awards, and you know, it's still winning awards. You know, so many awards, they didn't, they didn't even tell me about them. I was like, have I? Been, are we going to win an award? You know, it's crazy. So um, that I think they're kind of like happy with it as a kind of a yeah. cultural thing, even though it sort of was terrible timing uh and it was a great experience to be a part of it because um you know they had that attitude of we don't know music we don't really know songwriting or we don't know musical music production can you just kind of take care of all of that and that was a lot of responsibility but also a lot of control which i like so you're in new york at this time though right yeah so when do you come back to australia we were always planning to come back um in march of 2020 and then COVID just started creeping up. And weirdly, I think if we weren't already planning to leave and we hadn't already booked a removal list, we, we might even still be there. Or I don't know what we would have done. Because it's hard to organise getting out of New York at the best of times. But when there's like everybody's leaving and all of the removalists are booked up and it's really hard to get people to come and take your stuff, we were very lucky that we got out ahead of that. And so we essentially it coincided with um, March 12th, Broadway shut down and it was supposed to shut down for like a month uh and then um the 20th of march we we flew back to um australia and i was supposed to be doing a dolly parton musical nine to five um which i was really nervous about because i hadn't performed anything for ages and that got cancelled which i was sort of slightly relieved about because um uh i don't you know i just 
it's weird. I'm, my natural sort of default setting is like, you know, oh, you've got this big gig, and it's like, oh, it's exciting, but terrifying. And then when they go, oh, it's not happening, my first response was, oh god, thank god, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy because it was like a, it was my it was my job, you know, I had no job. So we came back to Sydney and we locked down. Um, did our, we got we beat the hotel quarantine by like one day, and we just sort of quarantined in an Airbnb and. Went sort of slowly nuts in that first lockdown, where, which everyone did. And then we made our way back to Melbourne eventually for the second lockdown. And I feel good that we went through that kind of epic, shitty, long lockdown with Melbourne because it felt like, you know, we sort of shared something uh, that I think is really significant culturally. The lockdown in Melbourne, I think it was a really, um, um, a really significant, I kind of hasten, I kind of worried about using the word like, traumatic but no, it was traumatic i don't i don't I think, think i think that you can use the word traumatic yeah, like i mean I, trauma is a real thing and people are going to have i mean i'm sure that you must have noticed it performing here um you know particularly i don't know if you've done many indoor gigs have you done many things just started yeah. yeah so i've noticed an absolute you know it's much slower to warm up people still get it. yeah there's some people coming out this is the first time i've been out amongst people for a year i'm yeah. still getting used to this that's not happening anywhere else in Australia. Like you're performing gigs anywhere else in Australia. At the start of the show, they're ready because they have not been through the same thing. So you can't tell me that yeah. there's not a trauma that, yeah, the people of Victoria, the people of Melbourne in particular have been through that is going to differentiate them from the rest of Australia. Well, I always knew that people don't really empathise or care about what other people are going through. They just don't. That's just a human thing. I think we do, but we don't. You know, we like to think we do, but at the same time as... You know, Sydney was open and going about it. Melbourneians were locked down and they really didn't quite understand what we were going through. And I went to Sydney. I wrote I wrote a couple of songs for um, Virginia Gay has written a pantomime for Belvoir Street Theatre. And it's going on at the end of this year, I think. And super cute, funny um, panto. And um, I'd written a few songs for it. And I was like going up to Sydney, um, 17th of December, which is also my, happened to be my birthday. And I was like, I'm going to be in a room with actors. This is going to be amazing. And then I woke up the next morning after doing a day at Belvoir and the Northern Beaches cluster thing was happening. And they were like kind of trying to decide which zone was like a red zone. And, and I was like, I gotta get the, I gotta get the fuck out of Sydney. I gotta get out of here because if I have to quarantine when i get back to melbourne i'll miss christmas and all of this has really been about well at least we'll have christmas you know we'd work so hard for christmas and so i was up i was upset and the woman at the reception of the hotel where i was staying was really kind of like she, she just had somebody from melbourne cancel a room and she was complaining about it to me and i got i got really upset i got really up emotional about it and i'm like you don't understand we've not gone anywhere in order to have Christmas. And now it's potential that that could be taken away because of an outbreak here where you guys have been like swanning around licking each other's faces, you know. Um, so that was that was when I noticed it was traumatic when people didn't get it or downplayed or dismissed what was going on. And the other part I noticed the trauma was when, because <laughs> I got two kids that we did the homeschooling thing and any parents out there will kind of know what, what that was like and we did most of it through google classroom i think which took me a an extraordinarily long time to understand um and then kids went back to school but they had like a presentation night where they show their work and normally you would turn up to the school and every classroom would have dioramas and come into the gym and there's this and 
But they were like, no, we're going to do that online. And we'd had like, I don't know, a month of like back to face-to-face classes. And then we had to go back into a Google Classroom, like WebEx, um, you know, click on this link at this time. And then you got to go to a breakout room and click. And it was the technology. And it freaked every parent. We just had, it just, it was like, hate again, these were triggering. We were like, oh my God, I never want to do this again it was stressful the kids were screaming and crying and no one really knew what was going on you're clicking on things and it's not working and your microphone's on on and i was just like i just i can't i can't it was intense it was really intense so i think that is a um i think it's something that we're going to keep feeling the effects of in melbourne but i'm glad i went through it because it would have felt weird to come back from being away for two years and miss that experience in Melbourne, so I feel like I sh- I shared something large that happened in the world and it happened specifically to Melburnians, and it gave me a great sense of solidarity. And I still see the the good remnants of that, like the picnics and the spending time outdoors, and you know that culture that really happened where we couldn't go more than five k's. I see remnants of that, and that's really exciting and good. So I'm glad I went through. Um, I'm glad I went through that. And just there's nothing in New York. New York is just there's no theatre. There's nothing. So, um, what was your actual COVID experience like? Because, uh, you know, you talk about some of the practicalities there, you know, the schooling, which is yeah. obviously a big one. Was there any insights into the education system and the way that the, the kids are educated that you had from being able to be a more direct observer of what's going on? Um, a, li- a little bit. I mean, <laughs> kids, are, kids are like... Kids have a voice now, which is great. So kids are like human beings. You're not just sort of like automatons who are sort of put in a class and taught at. You know, um, school, my kids go to an inquiry-based learning system. So they're engaged all the time, actively leading their own education, which is terrific. But Christ, some of them are painful. Like, so... <laughs> like, and some kids would just like monopolise... Right time and stuff like that and i and i think it took a while to work out how to mute them i think that was a good day (laughs) when they worked out how to mute some of those kids um and you know you'd you know people you'd see you know dad having a nervous breakdown on the back of somebody's webex and you know it was it was it was it was a real thing and i felt for the teachers because they kind of had to pivot as we all said a million times into that way of teaching and it's like everybody's job was the everybody that still had a job had the job with all the fun bits taken out it was just the grind part of it you know so that's an interesting observation the one that you've just made there because we had two classes of people in a lot of ways which was so many people who had to give up their jobs or their jobs were taken away from them yeah. you know but uh, and then there was those who worked harder than they have ever worked before frontlines you know you know essential service workers yeah whether they be you know hospital and emergency workers but like you know people who work at coles people who work at supermarkets people who had to go to the local cafe these people tended to be working harder than they had ever worked before in circumstances that were much more difficult than they'd ever worked in before and while the majority of people they knew were doing nothing we're yeah. staying at home. So not only are you working these... I'm sure a lot of people are very grateful to still be working, but at the same time, you're working in this... Like, you're working the hardest you've ever worked and everyone else that you know is kind of not working at all. That yeah. that inequity, that inequality must be... Like, that. there must be lasting consequences of that alone, I would have thought. I think so. I think, 
it also was like, so, you know, to give examples, it was all bitsy, you know, like little bitsy gigs. So, like, I was doing one thing where I was um, uh, going to be like a judge or, or a mentor for a musical theatre festival oh. that was happening in Newcastle, okay. right? Yeah. Cool. Uh, of course, couldn't, ended up not being able to travel there. Um, so, they're like, okay, well, you were going to perform a song. Can you now, like, make a video clip of that? So, you kind of have to become like a record a song make a video clip which i don't know how to do and i have no interest in doing and then you gotta like put it in a dropbox and send it off and then i had to watch everyone sort of perform via zoom and you know you're kind of like looking through a screen and so it's just so it was like this yes it was a job and i was really grateful to have it and yes it was great that was it, that the kids up in newcastle could get together and be physically present but um god it was like it was a shitty gig you know it was just like ugh. You know, where's the fun of it? You know, actually performing to an audience, that actual feedback, that whole um, online performing thing. I just... So I, did you do any? I, I made a web series um, with Lucy Durack and um, and Robin Butler and Wayne Hope, Hope yeah. um, who are just divine. And they just had this kind of like little 10 part um, Love in Lockdown series that um, Robin and Lucy had written and they asked me to do it while I was playing a ukulele teacher giving this very uptight character played by Lucy Durack ukulele lessons um, as a way of making money in the pandemic and they sort of fall in love over Zoom and we shot it. I was in Sydney and Lucy was in Melbourne and um, uh, it was super cute project where like, you know, I, we had to shoot it ourselves. We got sent this little kit of getting a camera and a light and a microphone and do it in this dimension. So that was a real learning curve, you know, and we had to work out how we're going to do this because you can't play and sing music with somebody via Zoom. There's a, de there's a delay in everything on the phone. And so that we had to fudge that. And It's my favourite thing, by the way, about any of those. Remember when there, there was all those concerts at the start and the Rolling Stones would all be playing like in you know, separate like places on screen, but playing the song together. And people like, it's amazing they could get that technology to work. And they're like, I'm like, no, they can't. No. They've all recorded that song and then they've all recorded that and they've synced it all together to make it look like what's happening. There yeah. is no technology that exists on earth that makes what they're doing capable. But it does then mislead everyone to think like, well, you can just do that, surely. Yeah, we can make music can't all you over the world. That? I know. No, you no, actually can't. It doesn't no, work like it's that. It's impossible. <laughs> There was that Australian, there was kind of a concert, an Australian concert, yeah. wasn't there, where yeah. they sort of pretended that was what was happening, but it obviously wasn't. So, yeah, little bits of those things. And that was kind of, um, that was kind of fine. And, you know, it was nice taking the girls for a skate. Like, we, we, we'd skateboard every day through the park, and that was nice. We got a lockdown dog. We got a puppy, and now that puppy is ginormous. And that was really cute. So we did all the things, you yeah. know, cycled through all the things. And, um, and now that we're back into stuff or coming back into stuff. Yeah. Firstly, you've got to get rid of that dog. Yeah. And then... <laughs> <laughs> what is the thing? We were like, when we were looking for a dog, and there were like, um, people were like, oh, we're, we're rehoming our yeah. dog. Yeah. There's heaps of people rehoming dogs because they're like, oh, yeah, unfortunately, mm. we, we, had, we have to go back to work. Yeah. I'm like, well, you didn't think that you think would ever that, go back to yeah. work? <laughs> How long did you think the lockdown was going to go for? 15 years. We thought it was going to go for 15 years. I'm sorry. So many dogs no, that are being rehomed. I'm like, that's the worst. It's like, oh, well, I got a bit of unconditional mm. love during lockdown, but now we're back. No. It's like, get, See him, get out of my house. <laughs> get out. It's brutal. 
I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That, that'll be, if that starts happening around our area, you know what that's going to mean? I'm just going to have a lot more dogs because yeah. my partner will be going through just coming where you're taking that dog <laughs> and that dog and that dog. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you do all this. When's your first time that you go back and you perform in front of people? So I, I was putting together a show um, that I did at the Malthouse Outdoor Stage called Introspective and I was like terrified of the whole thing. And I think, you know, I, we, we're the same manager. I think I drove Kevin like insane. Just was Kathleen McCarthy in the end was just like, these are the dates. This is what you're doing. Just do something. She's very pragmatic mm. and uh, in, encouraging in a, you know, I'm not going to give you a huge amount of love, mm. but just like, what are you, you're not going down the salt yeah. mines. You're just going to play. It's your the, job. You're going to play some of your funny songs. Play your funny songs. You <laughs> Take some money home. Yeah. <laughs> So they were very patient with me because I was like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And, you know. It's like, just bloody play your piano, sing your funny songs. Yeah. Just (laughs) do it. People will be happy. Just do it, man. So I went through the ringer, like, kind of going, am I even interested in doing performing anymore? And what am I going to say? And I wanted it to be about. So you did go through that, though, because I went through that. And, I mean, I know that's probably a very self-indulgent thing to go through during lockdown. But. When what you do is taken away completely, I do think that it is probably very natural to assess your relationship with it and whether you think it's a good and healthy part of your life, whether you want to do it again. Even the fact that you have to come back after such a big break, you think this has to be important and it has to be special. It has to be something bigger than what I was doing before. Like, So you did go through that process, those thoughts? Yeah. I was like, did you ever see like hairspray? You know, I was like the mum who hasn't left the house. It's just like, you know, <laughs> too scared. You know, it hasn't been out since the 60s. I was a bit like that. You know, I was like, I don't know, what do I want to say? And also I knew I wanted it to be about, kind of about the two years of being in New York. Um, but I hadn't worked out what parts of it I wanted to talk about and how I wanted to talk about it and what I wanted the tone to be. And... In order to find that and to write a script, and I had to kind of re-go through a, a lot of stuff in New York. That I mean, I, I mean, it was there was obviously great stuff, but there was some really difficult stuff. And I don't, you know, I'm like, there's a weird thing in on Broadway, or maybe it's true everywhere. But on Broadway, you kind of get like someone will completely fuck you over, and then you, if you get aggrieved, you become gross become like disgusting and so all of broadway is really about learning to hug people uh, you hate uh, who've yeah yeah people who've done you over yeah i think that comedy is a bit like that to be honest because uh, and i and again i'm not going to speak ill of the dead but there was a very famous comedy person who uh, everybody loved to died owing me about eighteen thousand dollars that i could have really done with at the time that i was finding it quite not quite as not quite as easy to you know eulogize their incredible life when i was like i remember when they ripped me off all that money that's what i remember about that person oh my gosh you're there at the funeral hoping it's an open like, casket so you can go through will? his pockets i was like oh, yeah. unless there's a cutout for me in the will just down the bottom man i leave the money I ripped you off. Yeah, I, it it was it, so I had to kind of like trawl through all that stuff and go, okay, what what are what am I going to talk about? And what am I not going to talk about? And um, you know, you have to be aware that like um, like the things that I find really like I find kind of like traumatic. Um, 
I just don't know whether anyone else would give a shit about, you know, or understand, you know. So, like, the worst thing that happened to me on Kong was that um, the producers cut one of my songs and got another one written behind my back by someone else. And that was like... So, most people who have, like, who don't work as a writer or anything would be like, oh, well, you know, the worst things that could happen. But um, it was like... It was the kind of betrayal of it was in, was so intense, and I just didn't know how to deal with it because you've been writing with these, you know, a, a, a creative team for two years, and there's a lot of trust because you're kind of like going into a high pressure situation. You know, you want the piece to be good. You've all got different ideas about what it should be. Yeah, but I mean, like the the, the idea that they go behind your back when it's your like, I mean, when you're so instrumental to the thing, it's just ridiculous. Like, of course you're offended by that. Like, if they come to you and have a conversation along the lines of, hey, we think this doesn't have, like, a hit and we want you to sit in a room with somebody and, like, work on something, we'd love you to talk to this person, maybe we can, like, do this. I mean, they are still, you know, awkward and uncomfortable conversations to have, but they are adult, grown-up conversations that you can have. That's, yeah. your, that's your conversation with Kylie Minogue about not singing in an American accent, right? Totally. But you didn't go behind... Kylie's back and get Danny to sing it in an Aussie accent, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kylie, we've yeah we've got your sister to re-record the whole thing, and she says bloke and mate a lot. I know. Well, it's, it's like that because it's also like um, you know, you know that producers are, can be sketchy or they can be brutal. You know, there's no reason. It's like oh, it happened behind my back. They could have done it in front of my back, and it still would have been painful, yeah. but would have been uh, would have respected it yeah. a little more. But you know, it's the silence from people where where like you know like your your director and your book writer who don't do anything, and then they and then they're like, well, it wasn't us, you know. And that yeah. was that not sticking up for people really gets to me. Like on Beetlejuice, you know, there were times when things got heated between. Um, the writing team and, and the producers. And I remember over one particular joke, Beetlejuice had this joke where it was like, um, he's just in the, you know, the scene starts, the Maitlands are in the attic, Beetlejuice is pacing around, he's in the middle of the story. Um, and he goes, you know, um, and he, it starts off, the scene starts off with Beetlejuice going, so I was like, let's do this. And then she was like, but I don't have any baby oil. But I was like, I got some guacamole and that's how I fucked Catherine Hepburn. Right? And he's like, right, let's be ghosts. Right? That's the opening of the scene. I loved that joke so much. I mean, that's a good joke. Like, I'm just like, that's hilarious. And then it got whittled down to, um, and that's how I got herpes from Catherine Hepburn. Not as strong. And then also worse. Yeah, like worse. I actually think that's a worse joke. I Much agree. more offensive to Catherine Hepburn as well. Like I agree because like before it's like it. The joke is that there's no way that like he's had sex with Catherine Hepburn to a certain like yeah, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous comical story. Yeah. But the next joke implies that you think Catherine Hepburn has herpes. <laughs> that's right. It's way worse. It's way worse. But they were like they were more into that. Because By the way, the- not to shame anyone who has herpes. Though. Like I, that's you know I yeah, understand. Of, but of it's just the worst joke. Yeah. Um, and then we had this big argument about that joke and the produ- producers wanted to cut it and it got heated and you know it got a lot of, it got really tense but i remember you know um something was said about the writers about holding on to material you're holding on to material that isn't funny why are you doing that if it's not getting a laugh you've got to learn to let things go it was one of those sort of conversations and i was like whoa nah that is that is the opposite of what these guys are like these guys have cut and rewritten jokes for days and they will keep doing it and they only 
keep things in if they get a laugh. And I think we're all being really honest that that is getting a, a significant laugh and that's why we're having this argument. So I thought that, that was... That's important to do, and they've right. stuck up for me. And you you stand up for you stand up for your collaborators and the people you trust. And that didn't happen on Con. The right. opposite of that yeah. happened, and so that was really hard because I was like, oh, um, who who's got my back, back here? Yeah. So walking back into the Broadway theatre where we were doing we were in previews for Kong, knowing that it all happened, like knowing that that the musical supervisor had secretly flown to London to facilitate this new song and no one was telling me about it. It was all very secretive and no one ever told me there was anything wrong with the closing number, by the way. Um, it was horrible because I didn't know who was on my side. But, was, but I didn't want to put that stuff in the show because I don't, I don't want to... A, I don't want to grind axes because I don't think mm. people enjoy hearing somebody... Like just tell their version of events, yeah. Um, even if they're true, but also it, it's all you can do is learn. I, I go, I go through that process so many times, and I'm like, well, I can't change the way other people behaves, and I could have, uh, would have liked other people to have behaved more honourably, and I wish that didn't happen, and that was unethical, or that was just kind of like just dastardly and horrible and despicable, and that was disappointing. But what about me? Like what? what could I have done or what did I do? Or what, if I, if, if not, what could I have done? What do I learn out of this going forward? And the two, the biggest thing that kept coming back to me, this is going to seem like a really weird, like, um, lesson to learn. I was like, Oh, you can't control anything except where you are. Like the room that you walk into, where you put your energy, where you put your time. I've never walked off a project. I've never pulled out of a project. I've never gone, nah, this isn't, um, I've always sort of stuck it out because I want to see how it all ends. Even if it's like a train wreck, I'm like, I want to get to the finish line. But, you know, we. so I was like, am I going to go to opening night of Kong? Because, you know, my song's being cut, replaced with this other song that I fucking hated, i got to say. But, um, of course, I would say that. I couldn't even argue that because it sounded like I was coming from a place of, you know, bitterness. But, you know, I had to go and I was like, no, I'm going to go to opening night because I've put myself on this path and I'm going to watch the show. And it was like just the final song was just like being stabbed in the heart. And then, you know, you get negatively reviewed based on material that isn't yours. My name is on the piece as the songwriter, but I didn't write that song. And, you know, this, the song it replaced with had, had um, melodic elements from a couple of other songs that were quite mm -hmm. obvious. One from The Greatest Showman and one that was a... Um, Alanis Morissette tune, really recognizable kind of like hooks yeah. that I think they. It was, it ended was weird when King Kong said about going down on someone in a theater. Yeah, I was like, this is, <laughs> it just feels like <laughs> he's like, isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Kong's there in a the scene, ten thousand spoons. All he needs is a knife. Yeah, <laughs> just like. Oh. <laughs> One hand in his pocket. <laughs> the other one's holding on to the Empire State Building. <laughs> so I'm like, people are like, dude, that song sounds uh, like this. And I'm like, oh, I didn't write that yeah, song. I didn't write it. All, all that sort of, all that sort of mm. shit. And it was no, crazy. Turns out, <laughs> I didn't write it. Turns out, whoever wrote The Greatest Showman and Alana Soros <laughs> yeah. wrote it. They wrote it. They wrote it. Um, so that was kind of like crazy. And it caused a 
a schism and I and like I yeah. now don't you know obviously not in contact with it. Well, well, it's more like I I try not to walk around with um, resentment, but so much of this game is like when you collaborate with people, you really need to trust them, and that trust yeah. that you're going to respect each other's ideas and you're going to work together. And when you no one knows the answer when something's not working on on stage, how do you fix it? No one knows exactly, but you all. If you're in a situation like we were on Beetlejuice where you all hold hands, you all look each other in the eye and you go, we're going to do this and we're going to jump together this way, then you all sort of live or die by that decision and it's great. But when that's not there, it's hideous and it's paranoid and there's, you know, you're like, I, that wasn't my choice and I don't, you know, it's, it's a disaster. Are you in a place where, um, because I've had this happen to me before, like, I mean, I don't think it's an uncommon story. I once, you know, felt like I was betrayed by somebody that I trusted, you know, in a work scenario. And while I have now got to a place in my life where I forgive that person for what they did, it it, it will always just live with me that I can't, that, you know, this thing happened and I have forgiven them and I'm not going to, you know, relitigate it. But at the same time, I could never trust that person again. Are you at a place where you can forgive these people for what's going so you can go on your life or are you still holding on to it a bit at this stage? Um, well... I mean, yeah. for your sake, not for their sake. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm not angry about it. Mm. I remember the. I remember the hurt of it. I remember the feeling. I remember finding out because I, I rang the line producer and I was like, "What is something's happening? I know something. What is happening?" And she just told me. And I was in the lobby of the the where we were doing um, Beetlejuice in Washington D.C. out of town, the lobby of the National Theatre in D.C. And I remember just like. It was um, it was like a it was like a breakup or you know just a horrible horrible feeling of betrayal where your mind is just like spiraling through all of the people that would have to be involved for that to have happened and mm. then you kind of get like disappointed when you keep thinking of each person and yeah. you're like you know and you're oh my god I really love this person we've been on this you know it's it's awful and then in your kind of anger or disbelief or shock or grief. Um, there is, I'd seen it happen to other people where they got really upset or they got angry and nobody wants, this is, the, this is the really difficult thing, to be fucked over but to control your feelings around it to the extent that you can still do what you need to do with that, those people or walk away. But if you create like um, drama or fuss or angst, then... People just want to destroy you because you. No one likes to think that they're bad. Right. Everyone justifies their own decisions, and having a person that is a reminder that you've done something wrong—it's just yeah. unattractive, and people don't want to be near it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Even though, you become a pariah. Right. Even though you're Even the one that you're got the one fucked. Who's been, yeah, fucked over. Yeah. If you show that you have been fucked over, it makes other people like comfortable because they don't want to think they fucked you over. Yeah, and you don't want to appear pathetic and you don't want to appear powerless. Mm. And so the amount of energy that went in to, um, to controlling my feelings around all of that was supreme. Mm. Sometimes it spilled over and so, sometimes um, it, was, it was controllable. But, I mean, I still... I had written a new song for Kong for the opening of Act mm. 2 that I had to put in the show. So I had to come back to the theatre and I had to do all of that stuff and I couldn't talk to the cast about what was going on because it's not their problem and they've got enough on their plate to worry about. Mm. And you don't know who is on your side and who's not. So it's just like, put the blinkers on, go, do it, do your job. And then 
get out. But yeah, like I said before, I was like, all you can control is where you are. And I would just, that's the lesson now. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to operate as a person that doesn't, I, I'm all in. Like, you know, if I'm working with people yeah. and I, I, I just love them and they remain people that I love. There's such a strong feeling of love that I felt in, in New York working with these creative people where you like, wow, you, you helped we helped each other's ideas become right. a reality and we defended them against attackers <laughs> and, you know, we yeah. put them on stage and we got what was in our head out on we the We went page, to musical the theatre war together. Went to musical theatre. People talk about, you know, in war, war metaphors right. all the time and it is combative like that. You weren't on Broadway, man. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know what it was like. There were cats everywhere. <laughs> cats everywhere. Dancing cats <sighs> everywhere you looked. That's the thing. But even with dancing cats, everyone would be all serious and there'd be arguments. No, that cat should be over here. And it's so stupid. Like you only have to take one step back and go, we're like grown-ups playing fantasies with costumes and wigs and sets. And it's all very... One of the most famous books about Hollywood is uh, like it was about, you know, things that have been said by producers in regard to, you know, productions. And the title of the book is An Alien Wouldn't Say That. And I think it sums up <laughs> it sums up every note yes. that you get about the uh, silly buggers that we are doing. Where somebody's like, a, a cat would not say that. A cat wouldn't dance like that. You're like, we are making King Kong the musical, guys. <laughs> like, but it's the best. All the stuff that I've read about <laughs> happened to me, and I was like, this is so crazy. Like things that I've read about in like Broadway biographies and stuff, like happened to me. Like where like an actor would come up to me. Um, during tech and we're all in like the you know tech the the auditorium the theater's all covered in tables and computers and laptops and there's a lot of downtime and there's a lot of eating of snacks and uh an actor sidled up to me and was like hey i just been thinking that you know my i think my character should have a song yeah and then i'm like oh my god i'm having this conversation i'm like oh yeah like um where, you know, this is the non-singing character. I was going right? to say, yeah, it's like this is a character who does not have a song. He's like, and the, I, act, you know, like, and the I, actor's possibly been cast because they don't have a song. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't know. I just like, when you're watching, have a think. Because like in this scene, when I leave uh-huh. Anne, there's there's a moment. There's like a, a moment. And I, I've just been feeling it. And I feel like, you know, there's a moment there to kind of like take stock of what she her journey and then to tie it into mine I just like doesn't need to be long you know a couple of stanzas think think about it I'll be like wow I'm always like (laughs) my approach to that is like that is a really interesting Interesting idea idea. (laughs) I'm like I'm really gonna think, and of course, I'm, I'm like, this is the fucking worst idea ever. You are not singing a song. There's no way you're singing it. Uh, like, it's not about you. The scene isn't about you. And get, yeah, you know what I mean. We gotta get, we gotta get to the get fucking monkey. Yeah, come on, where's the monkey? Yeah, every second that monkey wasn't on stage yeah. was like death in that show. Exactly. And. Uh, and so, no, a lot of the reviews of that show said if only that guy had sung a song, it would have been a great success. This is the thing. I would have loved that version of the show. Where, where, yeah. Just go, yeah, it's okay. No, you can have a song. Yeah. There's a dude in the UK who'll mash together some, something from another musical and some yeah. old Alanis Morissette. Yeah. We've got a whole, de- whole secret department dedicated oh, yeah. to it. So that kind of stuff happened. And then, you know, being told like by producers they don't like your song, you know, I. Yeah. I uh, we we had this amazing um, 
experience workshopping Beetlejuice where there was a song that Otho sang called The Box, which is about this invention he'd made where everybody's going to put their consciousness into this box and will live as just pure consciousness uh. for forever. And the producer didn't like it, didn't really get it. And I used to tease him just by sending him photographs of boxes just like on email because uh. he hated <laughs> the song so much. And then I decided I would put a bridge in that song which was sort of like a bit of backstory for why, you know, Otho had created this box and basically like he had a bad relationship with his father. He just wanted to create a whole world that he could then live in and then when he, then he could turn to his dad and say, fuck you, dad, you're not getting in my box, right? So that was the sort of like the bit of backstory bridge, fine. Um, we had this actor just completely dis- destroy the song, not in a good way. Not in a bad is good way, like just in the wor- in the workshop showing, he just stuffed it up so badly. And the producer's like, um, Eddie, can I talk to you out in the lobby? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, okay, so you know I hate this song. I hate it. I hate this song. But the thing that I hate more than the song is the new bridge you wrote. Like it's like I, something that I really hate inside something I already hate. Do you know what I mean? Like I hate, I just hate it. I, mean, I, I know what you mean. So I but... want you to like either cut the song. That would yeah. be great. But if you're not going to cut the song, cut that bridge because I hate it. I hate, I hate it more than I hate the song. Mm-hmm. I was like, I get it. You hate it. You hate it. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff, which is like, I actually kind of enjoy that stuff. Yeah. I'm but like, also, like in a way, it almost like if you could cut the bridge helps. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just put something in there that he hates even more. You're like, you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's yeah. go back to... Let's go back to the song that's original. <laughs> it's like a war of attrition, like yeah, trench totally. warfare. Oh, you hate this? Well, I'm going to put in something you hate even more and then we'll compromise on yeah. me taking that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> Very sneaky. Yeah, all that kind of all that kind of stuff. Like people hating stuff and then... But the good thing about comedy is um, when you're writing for comedy is a lot of the time... Um, you know, I always have this thing where I, if I wanted if I felt strongly about a piece of work and other people wanted to cut it, I'd be like, can it at least die in the light? I don't want it to die. You know, you have so much development where you get to try things. Can we try it? See how people respond. See if people like it. If they don't like it, we change it. But like, there are things that people were like, this is definitely got to go. This is not right. And then we would do a workshop showing of it to like invite a guest and people would like laugh their asses off. And then it was like, oh, and now all of a sudden it's in. You just don't know. And the opposite, of course, always happens. Like yeah. happens. There's always that thing that, I mean, we even have a little rule at Gruen. If everybody in the room laughs at something that's said in a meeting, I can almost guarantee it won't work on the show. Yeah, right. That's so interesting. Like, isn't you it? know, it's just one of those things where it's just like we all love that. Almost can guarantee that that will not translate. Whatever we all find magical about that will yeah. not translate to the audience. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Uh, okay, so look, we need to start winding up. All but right. I um, so you start doing this. Uh, a show you yeah. go to the malt house you've panicked about what it is that you are going to do you aren't going to do what did you end up landing on well i the first show was an hour and a half because there wasn't any restriction on how long yeah. it was supposed to be and then we got um that remember that snap five day lockdown so that kind of went over my first two nights right so they got cancelled. So my first night was sort of like um, the third night. And then we started doing double shows, which meant they had to be exactly an hour. So I had like one day to cut it down from an hour and a half to an hour. And I think I removed a lot of the sort of negative stuff because the first show had a lot more. I didn't talk about the song being cut from Kong, but I did sort of talk about like the stress of making that show. 
and what it sort of did to me. Um, and I probably got into, I probably just sort of padded that, that stuff out a bit too long. And the net result was at the end of the first show, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, I just felt like I'd pulled my pants down in front of an audience and yeah. just gone, hey, check out my junk. And like in a very yeah. embarrassing kind of, like anxiety yeah. dream not, way. not just like pull down your pants but literally then lifted up your penis like stretched out your balls like made sure that everyone had a real good look at what was going on yeah everyone's yeah. like right up close yeah. looking and going yeah i mean yeah it was mildly like entertaining going, <laughs> going like you reckon this lump's natural or is that like a, it's been there for ages i've never not really his, got it checked out but <laughs> not his best show <laughs> not his worst though yeah. you know that's the truth it was okay yeah in 2000 and something way back amy and i broke up that one of the first times that we broke up it was a proper big breakup you know first ever love of my life and a proper yeah. breakup and i landed in adelaide about four weeks after a breakup and decided that i should be talking about that breakup on stage only because i couldn't think about anything else yeah and it was pulling your pants down in front of an audience it was not it was not it was not a show it was a man having a nervous breakdown on stage yeah I, it became a show people quite like that show once i got out of adelaide but it took me it took me all of adelaide to go from a man having a nervous breakdown to it actually being a show it's so interesting because um you you're dealing with so many different things where you're like okay well there's something significant to me what is its effect or its interest level for other people and then there's like how do i process it as a human being away from the stage um, and then how do I make that entertainment? Um, and then how do I take care of the audience? And you, you, you know, if you're in tune, you find stuff. That, you know, I was talking about like um, this kind of weird compulsive thing I got where I was digging my nails into my head and like um, kind of relentlessly kind of scratching at my scalp without really knowing about it during Kong. I just like a sort of weird, like a parrot pulling its feathers out. It was awful. But I do a bit of that actually. Oh my it's God. Weird. It's really, it's like a stress thing. I've yeah. never done it before. And now it's this new, like, I don't even, I don't even have yeah. fingernails. That so was like, it's really bad. And um, to the extent that, you know, the director of Beetlejuice was like, dude, are you okay? And you know, that kind of stuff, I talked about, but you know, you find stuff where you like, you, they, these shows were outdoors and they were during the day. I could see everybody's like horrified faces. Yeah. <laughs> so you like have to go, I'm all right now. Like I'm yeah. okay. And then you find ways to, yeah. to guide an audience through difficult stuff. And, and you know, like it's always the same thing, funny, sad pathos and then humor, you know, weight and then light, um, you know, light and then dark and, and constantly, trying to work out what those are and, and i mean i don't know if you ever completely get them right but you have your own instinct about where you want to take people and you don't want to go too far deep into the darkness without having some levity to it but at the same time if you're all levity and you don't let people into these other places occasionally it can feel sort of superficial so it's a very it's a very difficult juggle especially when you've had so much time away from it like we have well, you, but you had a, almost a double of that because you'd had this time away really concentrating on, you know, being on Broadway, yeah. writing musicals, you know, not so much about your individual career or like, you know, you're like, it's just going to be me in front of an audience communicating directly with the audience. It was you communicating through, you know, casts and people singing your songs and productions yeah. and all these things to then go to something that is much more pared back. It's you and an audience, but also without that, that year where... 
there was no audiences. Audiences are getting used to it again. You're getting used to it. And there is that sense of, I don't know if you were like this, but I think that from my point of view, there was a real part of me that was like, well, when I come back to this, it's got to like mean more. And yes. I don't know if that's a good thing to think. In, th in some ways, I think that it's probably silly. It always should mean something, but you can almost limit yourself by this feeling that I'm going to come back and it's going to all mean more. I don't know. What was your feeling about those sort of things? Well, I, my identity for two years in New York was uh, as a writer. Every working relationship I had with anybody was me being the writer and working with incredible actors. But I sort of, that was my, mostly because that was my job and I had no time to do anything else. But I was not there as, my visa stipulated that I was there as a writer. I wasn't there as a performer. I couldn't perform. Mm -hmm. um, and so for, for my identity very much got caught up in being a writer. I sort of like forgot that I was a performer. Like you start, if you, people don't see you as a thing, then you stop, to, you stop being it in a uh -huh. weird way. Like I was even like, oh, even if I could get up and perform, I just didn't. I, I felt like I hadn't no right to do it. I, I, I'm not a I'm not a performer in this place. And on a couple of occasions where I did like host a sort of, a, we did like a um, we did a a charity ball and we did a whole bunch of songs from that had been cut from the show. And I hosted that, but I also sort of performed at it. And that was super weird for me because I'm like I'm performing on stage with bro like Broadway actors. Um, and they have, they have only seen me as the writer that's sitting with his laptop in the corner of the room. I, you know, and I'm suddenly like, is this? I'm like, this is what I do. I'm good at that. Right. I'm good at this, but I've just, I don't feel like I have my powers here. You know what I mean? It was like a, I felt like um, I'd left them in Australia or something. You know, yeah. I wasn't seen as a performer, so I didn't have a right to do it, which was a super weird thing to feel. Um, but then, you know, you do, I'd do gigs with them and they'd be like, oh, you know, you're funny or you're like, oh, you're actually kind of like entertaining or, or you can actually sing. Where, but, but it's coming from a place of that guy that is just drinking a coffee on his laptop. Yeah. They have very low expectations. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not a performer. You're, no one knew anything about that. Okay. So they didn't know that you had like this, you know, very established and successful performing career like behind you. In no, no idea. To right. the extent where, um, um, Aussies in New York would always like stop me on the street and go, "Oh, Offspring or Play School or whatever," yeah. um, and I would, if I was with Americans that I'm working with, they would be like, "How do these people know you?" And I just got to saying, "Well, it's Australia is a very small place. We all we all know each other, right?" And they're like, kind of, kind of accepting of that in a weird way. And one day we were at this. They're more accepting of that than the idea that somebody would be super famous and not be telling everybody about it because that is very un-American. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big deal in Australia. Yeah. So then, I mean, they knew something was They've up. They've just named two of the biggest TV shows in Australia. One for older people, one for younger people. I was on both of them. <laughs> I've got the spread, the demographic spread, guys. We were doing rehearsing at New 42, which is this newfangled um, rehearsal studio where all the Broadway shows rehearse. It's quite extraordinary, like a multi-layered factory of Broadway shows in, in rehearsal or in development. And um, I'm with the cast of Beetlejuice. We get into the lift and then it stops at a level. The lift doors open and Kate Blanchett and Richard Roxburgh get into the, into the lift. 
I, kn- I know both those guys a little bit from having like their Kate's time at STC. I did Thripney Opera there and I met her. And um, so I know these, I know Richard and Kate enough that they know me and we can say yeah. hi, but I don't, we're not mates or anything. They get in the lift and they're like, oh, Eddie, hi. And I'm like, oh, hi, Kate. Hi, Richard. And the cast <laughs> of Beetlejuice are losing their right. shit, right? Uh. And then they get off and everyone turns to me and they're like, how do you know Kate Blanchett? And I'm like, it's Australia is Australia's a very small, small place. It's a very small place. We, it's, a, it's a lovely place where everybody knows everyone's names. And they're like, oh, right on. I remember being in Italy. I remember that Megan Gale, you know, Megan Gale, the uh, model. Uh, she was a, uh, an actress. She was a huge star in Italy. Like there was some sort of big campaign there that she was like the face of and became this like really huge star in Italy. And so we're in Italy having lunch and this like waiter comes up to us and like, you know, recognises that we're Australian. And he's like, you know, he said, uh, you know, do you know Megan Gale? Like really excited. And there's a part of me that wants to go, look, we are a country of 25 million people. Like we don't all just know each other. But I'm also like, yeah, I do know Megan yeah, Gale. <laughs> <laughs> it's Australia. We all know yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah. And there is something kind of like, you know, <laughs> magical and weird about Australia. Like the yeah. amount of like uh, arguments I had with New Yorkers about ridiculous, like strangers. Most New Yorkers are really nice, but yeah. around their house and their apartments, they're really super uptight. I got told off by this guy for sitting on his stoop. Oh. Um, and I was his next door neighbour. Mm. I don't think he realised that, you know. Um and he's like, you know, do you just go around sitting on people's stoops in Australia? And I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah. We're pretty chill about it, actually. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what the yeah. fuck, dude? Um, it's so outdoors, I, man. Yeah. It's outside your house. It's fine. It's yeah. not like I'm like, it's fine. It's the street. It's basically the street I'm sitting on. Well, this is a, you know, there's like a, um, someone's probably written a thesis in New York about who owns the stoop mm. and who can go on the stoop. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, there was a bit of that. And it was nice being... I mean, I forgot I was Australian. There's, it's different in New York than it is to LA. Like, yeah. There's a community of uh, Australians in LA and to the extent that you can go over there to work in the film industry and never really make friends with, the me- with Americans because there's so many Aussies there. But New York is just, it's not. There's like four people or five people on Broadway and it's just, you know, people getting together and complaining about their lack of health insurance. That's what Australians are. There's no kind of system or um, guide or club you can drop in at it. There's no like Australians on Broadway awards or none of the things that exist in Hollywood. So you do have to kind of make it up as you go along. And I just forget I was Australian until someone would impersonate my accent, you know. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm Australian and I loved being Australian. I loved being other. You know, I, I, it gave me a sense of like, I don't know, not that I didn't feel better than anyone, but I certainly, I, I felt like, you know, I had a, an experience um, and, a, and I think Australians are probably more worldly than maybe a lot of New Yorkers are because everything's there. They don't really go anywhere. It's very, it can be really insular, whereas Australians, you know, to get out of our country, we have to like commit. We have to travel. You know, Americans don't even want to come to Australia. It's too far on the plane. You know, and we're like, we we, we go. We go to Europe. We go to the UK. We go to the continent of Africa. We go to Southeast. We really get around. And Americans don't. You know, they, well, at least New Yorkers don't. Oh, so it, it's interesting to me when you've been an Australian overseas, which was something that I experienced for a long time and very much enjoyed. Um, 
but now being home, because I'm home here for a, a while, I think, you know, I mean, international travel yeah. still seems like it's a fair way away. And, it does. Um, you know, which has meant that I've concentrated more on, you know, a few things that I want to do here. But are you in that same position or are you itching for the opportunity to be able to get back overseas as soon as you can? What's like, where's your head at in regard to where your life and career is going to be for a while? I Look, I would love to be able to maintain a career as a composer lyricist for Broadway because it is just like it's the sandpit with all the toys in it mm-hmm. it is unbelievably well resourced um, not just in terms of um, the attitude to there is no apologies for the art form it's their art form they made it they love it they make money out of it so they they have an appetite for it and as a result it attracts incredibly skilled creative passionate people and it's always evolving even though it's a commercial art form um, it is always evolving in the way um, people are telling story with um, music. And so I'll always want to work there. But, you know, I, I love being in Australia. I love being away from it. I love the space. And coming back here has been a process of wanting to reconnect, you know, with this country. And that has been a weird process because it got stunted by COVID. But I've had two experiences now that, I, that, that have made me feel like I'm back. One of them was going and seeing Paul Williamson's Hammond Combo at the Rainbow Hotel, my favourite band on the face of the planet. And that's not hyperbole. I just absolutely, it's my favourite band. I just love them. And, you know, sitting in a pub, drinking a pint of beer, listening to my favourite band in a small room, amazing. I was like, this is Melbourne. This is my, this is what I did all through my 20s. This is so great. What a great cultural city this is. And then I took my kids, the other experience was very Australian. I took my kids camping in the Grampians National Park, um, which is where I used to go as a kid all the time. And, you know, I, I had to go and buy a tent and a gas bottle. And like, I'm such an idiot. I'm wandering around Bunnings going, how do I do this? And I'm with my kids. And we, we just made it a project. And then, you know, I knew it was the first kind of big multi-night camping trip. So we couldn't mess it up because if we did, it would like kill camping yeah. forever. And Lucy wasn't coming. It was just me and the two girls. Um, and we packed up the car and we went camping. We went to Borough Hut Camping Ground, walked up the Pinnacles, which I walked up as a kid. Um, unbelievably beautiful kangaroos, emus everywhere. Went up north to Stapleton Campground, um, you know, climbed Hollow Mountain, climbed Mount Zero. A very different environment up there, like kind of drier. And reconnecting with that experience was just absolutely magical. Just like hanging out with my kids with like... Um, with, you know, we did it a lot um, in the lockdown, but there was always the the prism of um, computers and laptops and school going on that kind of monopolized their minds and their attention. But this was like, all right, sitting around a campfire, what are we going to do? Let's play a game where you got to describe the plot to a movie without giving away key factors and we've got to try and guess. And I found out my nine-year-old daughter is like, I described the plot of Finding Nemo without mentioning any fish. And she was like, boom, you know, nervous dad, Lost his wife and kids. Kids disabled. Wanders off from school. Gets abducted. And my daughter is like finding Nemo. I'm like, damn. You know, you learn things about your kids in those situations. And we were just disgustingly filthy. But it was like, oh, what a beautiful country. And like three hours drive and you get to the Grampians National Park. And it's ancient and it's overwhelming and it's absolutely beautiful. And... Um, those experiences are really nice. So I kind of want to really reconnect with Australia and I don't really, I'm quite happy to have a break from travel 
for a little while, unless it's sort of in, in Australia. Um, uh, but I also have this very strange down feeling of like, my life was was this mountain, mm-hmm. climbing up Mount Beetlejuice or Mount Broadway. Um, and it that involved not just all of my kind of creative powers and time, it involved me packing up my family and moving there and living in a new city for for two years and, you know, life turned up to 11 and all the stress of that. Now I'm on the other side of it. I know I've got other irons in the fire, but, man, it feels like a little lost. You know, you feel like you're kind of wandering or you're trying to, you know, mm-hmm. you're spinning your, to use a metaphor, your kind of bicycle pedals trying to catch the chain, you know, feel something like this is it. Now we're plugged in. I'm at the beginning of projects and they're, they're meandering and there's no deadline and it's there's no pressure and I'm I'm kind of missing I don't really know what the next thing is you know don't really know who who I am or what mountain to climb do you know what I mean so uh this leads to a question that I've only started asking on the podcast since the 200th episode but I think it's pretty appropriate to ask now which is um it's as close as I have to an inspirational sort of quote you know like a pillow with a you know hang in there sort of on it um on my desk there was a little you know piece of metal and inscribed in it it says what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail and it's always just been something that I have often like just needed to remind myself of not thinking about like you know what the success or otherwise of this project is going to be what would you do if you were guaranteed of it being successful so i'm going to ask you that question eddie well, perfect well that's an interesting what question would, yeah. because i'm not afraid of failing i've done it a lot it sucks but i'm i've never said no to in fact i've said yes to things i shouldn't have said yes to just because i was like this is a challenge why just um, because of the challenge i don't want to be scared i don't want to be scared of. i don't want to say no to things that i'm scared of yeah um i i Actually, I've got a good answer for this. I've got a. I'm going to put this out into the world. I've got this project that I've that I can't shake that I've had in my head now for ten years, and it's a musical about the first four years of colonisation of Australia. Governor Arthur Phillip coming to um, uh, you know Port Jackson and the beginning of that Port Jackson settlement. Those first four years which includes, you know, William Dawes, the astronomer, Watkin Tench, the, uh, who, who was a great journaler, um, uh, involves Hemelwai, it involves Benelong, it involves Padigarang. It's like, it's, it's in, the, in, the, in the Venn diagram of like white colonial England and um, Aboriginal Australia, at least um, in that particular area, there's this really interesting crossover which includes these incredible characters like Ben Long and Putty Garang and um, Pemulwuy, um, and it's full of uh, it's 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 the time where it was the, the disaster that was colonisation began, but in amongst it there are like. There are mistakes and there are good intentions and there are good people and there are bad people, but there are so many amazing characters. Mm. The difficult thing and is that I fa- can... And the fact that, you know, the or those things that started then are still being played out today, 200... Yes. Yeah, you know, 30 years later. It was um, the ro- it's the beginning of that. a roadmap of disaster. Right. And, I, and I think that it's an amazing part of history that, um, that all Australians should be aware of because of its kind of like setting up of the tragedy but it's also full of like kind of coincidence and serendipity and it's so it's a strange period of history it ends with Benelong who you know had never met a white person 
being kidnapped, learning English, fluent English, being take going back to England with Governor Arthur Phillip, um, being in the royal court. Um, they took a kangaroo as well, which survived about thirty years after everybody. Um, it's an extraordinary amount of time, a period of time, um, and I, obviously, I feel like. I could write the white part of it, but I can't write the black story part of it. I can't write the indigenous perspective of it. But I have seen various pieces of theatre which in which are white stories, like um, uh, Secret River, um, that was turned into an STC play, where um, in that book and also on stage, um, the Aboriginal people are inscrutable. They, that's where the terror comes from. What do they? What do they want from us? Are they friendly? Are they? Uh, are they aggressive? What, what is happening? And they're, they're like a kind of a inscrutable mass. And I, w- I want to write a piece where there is, amongst the Indigenous people, there is a collection of attitudes and disagreements right. and, you know, how do we deal with what's going on? My and I, and I that think I, that that is incredibly interesting because the one thing that I think that, you know, people are becoming much more aware of is the fact that, like, the idea of there being an Aboriginal people is one of the most misleading you know, uh, you know, mistruths that we are led to believe because there were hundreds of different tribes all with different languages and different customs and different perspectives. And so the idea that it was even... Like, even within those groups, there would have been disagreements and misunderstandings and all those sort of things. But then from yeah. tribe to tribe, they were often speaking completely different languages, having different cultural practices. Yeah, we should go to war. We should go. We should make peace. We should steal this. We should not do this. We should go here. We should stay. We should... All of those things. That's, hum, that's human beings. And um, the issue is that because of the mistreatment of First Nations people um, culturally in this country is I don't... I can't write that story. No. So how do I find how do I find the people to write that story with? Because Chris Lilly. do a collaboration <laughs> with Chris Lilly. He's, he's happy to do it in blackface if if it helps. No, um, well, I mean, yeah, it, it would have to be something that was a genuine collaboration with somebody who could tell yes. that story in a legitimate way, right? So there is a high yeah. high um, probability of failure with a project like that. Yeah, um, yeah, just certainly my sensi- my le- sensibility. leading with your chin. There'd be a lot of leading with your chin. There'd be so many areas where you could absolutely get that story wrong. But that, totally. in some ways, then prevents us from telling those stories as well in a way that is trying to be genuinely meaningful, genuinely educational, genuinely, like, you know, trying to... Like, when we look at... I think one of the biggest problems we have around colonisation is this idea that... I mean, I, I was going to say that things are black and white, which I guess is like a terrible pun, which I did not mean. With th- this idea that all the colonisers were one type of people and all the, you know, the uh, you know in First Nations people were one type of people, whereas none of that is true. You know, there were, like you said, there's terrible colonisers. There were people who were there against their will. There were people there with good intentions and, you know... Exactly that same broad dichotomy on the other side, yeah. and, and and when we see people as being all one thing and all another thing, it stunts us all still. Like totally. if we believe that all the colonizers were, it's equally as destructive in a way. You can believe that colonization is a terrible thing, but separate that from the fact that not all the colonizers were necessarily terrible people. Yeah, well, just like how did we come? How did we end up in this yeah. situation? And I think that you know, comedy is very scary in that. Uh, that obviously has a high degree of failure because what is acceptable to be laughed about. But I thought find things like this is funny to me. So, Manly, right? Right. Manly is named because Governor Arthur Phillip was in a boat getting rowed past Manly Cove, and there were 
bunch of indigenous men hunting and he thought they looked manly. Manly. So that's why it's called manly. manly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the stupidest thing. And anyone that's gone for a bushwalk or to a national yeah. park has climbed up a mountain that's got a stupid name or yeah. is, you know, like the naming of things. You know, when all of these places already had names and now you see even when the Grampians, you know, they're winding back from, you know, Stapleton who named a lot of those kind of um, passages and walks and mountains and valleys. You know, they're winding back and they're, and they're, um, they're finding the Jabwarung um, name for um, uh, and they're and they're giving them back their Aboriginal names, which is what they were named, you know. So I re- this project, I can't shake it because it's epic. It's like kind of yeah. Hamilton epic but i feel like um it could also be very humorous um involve huge casts have a massive resonance and e- but even if you didn't fail on the creative side of finding the people to collaborate with who you share a sensibility and a trust where you can you know lock in and tell this insane story what do we what do we want to say and how do we want to say it you know then whenever you know whenever you touch australian history like bloody hell, you know your Andrew Bolts and your columnists come out. That's not how it happened, and there's a, it's so contentious because Australia has this incredible culture of like f- not feeling bad about ourselves. And how then, can we change the world yeah. and the narrative so that we never feel bad about ourselves? Where's the reckoning, you know? And, and I think that art can do that, and I think comedy can do that, and certainly musical theatre can do that. And I'm like, I kind of want to try. I don't know how to do it but I want to try. and that. So if I knew I couldn't I'm fail... Th- I'm going to throw one more thing into the mix there. Yeah. That, like, I mean, I, it, you know, but I think the biggest thing that we have to confront almost in all of this, because yes, of course, the your culture wars that would be fought over something like this, but I feel like culture wars, what we've done with culture wars is we've let the right, the conservatives, whatever it is, like control the culture wars by making by acknowledging that the culture wars are a legitimate thing that exists every time that that becomes about that narrative that we accept that andrew bolt has this opinion that we let it play out in a thing it, it is purely it's a grift it's a con they don't care it is literally them getting clicks on their pages all these sort of things the minute we buy into that narrative the minute the abc and it's an argument i've always had at the abc which is the minute that you start writing the shit that they say in the australian that you should be covering on your news guess what happens you don't get good editorials in the australian they just start asking for more stuff yeah they just like move the goalpost again and say that you're not doing this properly yeah i think the biggest challenge is that musical theater theater in general in australia and comedy also has not been an inclusive place for first nations audiences not just performers like you'll see some performers and writers and creatives now but for audiences because if you write you know colonization the musical yeah and you know you start it becomes hamilton successful it's still not successful unless you can look out in that audience and see first nations people sitting there in the audience being able to enjoy it being able to go to those theaters be in a position to like you know have access to those cultural institutions that they've traditionally felt very disenfranchised from yeah i and i i i totally agree and i think that you know um when I mean, you look at the work of that Bangara's been doing for so long, and it's so clever and smart and beautiful, and you know that, you know, it's like, well, let's let's play together. And I feel like comedy is so dangerous with that. But we know that you know, First Nations people are fucking funny people. Like comedy is a big part of that. And I think that you know, 
often when I go and see work in the theatrical space that deals with either colonization or or deals with First Nations people's stories, it is very serious. It's like it's there's a there's a kind of a reverence about it. Yeah. And you know, I get a little bit like annoyed with you know just seeing a whole audience full of white mm-hmm. fellas coming out and kind of like clutch, you know, like isn't hand in their heart, isn't this, yeah, yeah it's so isn't powerful. Isn't this thing that we already knew was terrible, terrible? Yeah, it's powerful and moving. Oh. And I'm like, I don't want to make that. I want to make something that's like... My pre-existing prejudices were really reinforced by this. Yeah. <laughs> and this is an important... What a powerful and important piece of work. And I need to demonstrate to the room <laughs> that I'm one of the good ones, yeah. you know? I'm one of the good ones. I, I yeah. I'm feel bad yeah. about it. Which you should feel bad about, but yes. at the same time, that's not the experience I yep. want people to take away from a no. theatre piece that I make. I, w- I want something that's like messy and baffling and hilarious and um, kind of tragic, but also, you know, funny. That's what we are. I think that we, as human beings, we, you know, we find the comedy in tragedy. And I would love to work with Indigenous creatives to create a piece that is epic, that, um, that, has something really interesting to say about the stupidest beginning to a colonised country. I mean, it is insane what happened here. Australia is like such a weird country and we live with this stuff every single day. And I just, uh, you know, the 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 fallout of what happened, um, the disenfranchisement, the violence, the murder, the war, it all started in 1788 with this kind of insane idea of just taking this land that wasn't theirs because they felt a superiority as like a, a, they felt um they were human and and aboriginal people were not they yeah. were just animals and so it's but also we, we think that yeah these indigenous people are animals but also we are going to use this as a place to like put out i mean this, this is the of course the original conceit of australia right a prison colony yeah like we have these people that we don't want in england anymore and we are willing to ship them to the other side of the world and dump them in this country that we've just claimed that is yeah what it was it wasn't like they were like oh my god we found the best place we've got to get down there it's and they just didn't know how to live here they didn't know yeah. how to grow anything like they couldn't. a place that is completely opposite anyway we have to finish up Eddie. we can i love talking to you we can keep talking for ages but you i, I have a very <laughs> very big day today and I, I need to stop talking um uh, final question uh, every time you come on the podcast you get a trip on a time machine so forward backward in time wherever you want to go you can visit your own life you can visit somebody else you can do whatever you want to do on your time machine uh what do you want to do uh, I'm always a forward person, yep. so I would go. I would go. I would go forward. To be honest, how far forward? I'm gonna go 50 years, and I'd go to like Optimistic. Melbourne Central. <laughs> I go to I go to uh, Westfield. Oh yeah, okay. I'd a Westfield like, in 50 years. Uh, walk 50 years and oh. walk around JB Hi-Fi and check out the stuff. Do you really think that in 50 years' time, Westfields or JB Hi-Fi are going to exist? Surely all consumerism is going to be online by then. I I don't know. You don't think so? You think there'll still be a place for physical shops and shopping centres and things like that? Yeah, because they're modelled on marketplaces. That's what they are. People like to come together and they've just worked out a way. But isn't the marketplace the digital marketplace now? Won't all that just be Amazon and stuff like that in 50 years' time or whatever the equivalent of Amazon is? I know, wouldn't you? You'd get out of the time machine in 50 yeah. years. There's just drones dropping <laughs> yeah, parcels right. in people's houses. Everyone's sad and fat. And you're, you're like... You're, you're right. walking around going, where's the JB Hi-Fi, guys? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> JB, what? 
<laughs> that's the robot on the street. <laughs> JB, I know. <laughs> You're like, all right, dude, let's, let's get back to 2021. <laughs> uh, Eddie, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure as always. Can, can we plug something? Is there anything in particular that we can plug for you? At the um, yeah, I'm doing, um, I'm doing the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Oh, yes, of course. Which is great. That's so been when announced. is that? That's like the 16th and 17th of June, I think. Okay. I'm doing introspective there. And then I'm also doing... Um, I think it's the 24th of June at um, QPAC, oh, yep. Queensland Performing Beautiful. Arts Complex in Brisbane. Um, yeah, so come and check out the, the show. Thank you, mate.